Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your host. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today, I'm going to be telling you guys part two about the Black Dahlia murder. So pour yourself some coffee and let's dive on in. continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more crime over coffee content by signing up for our patreon you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content to check out this opportunity and sign up for the crime over coffee patreon visit www.patreon.com slash crime over coffee pod thank you again for all of your support so if you missed part one abby talks in that episode about the murder of a woman named Elizabeth Short in January of 1947. She goes through and talks a lot about the murder and then the immediate investigation following the murder. But in this episode, we're going to talk about the suspects, some of the confessions. Abby had mentioned that there were quite a few confessions that came after the murder. And then we'll talk about some of the different theories. As Abby described the murder in part one, I'm not going to re-describe the murder. It's very gruesome. If you want to go listen to part one to hear more about it, you can. Based on the murder and the way that the body had been dissected and had been cut, a lot of police officers thought that the killer was probably somebody who had some sort of medical background. So one of the things that they first started looking into was the University of Southern California Medical School to see if any of the students there could have been at all involved in this murder. This unfortunately was a dead end and they didn't find anybody in the school that seemed suspicious or that could have been potentially involved in the murder. Something I found kind of interesting and maybe they just didn't state it up front but you know they they see that maybe somebody with a medical background has committed this murder due to the manner in which she was severed in half. And it's funny to me that they just went straight to the university instead of like hospitals. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's accurate. I don't know if they just were assuming that it was maybe a younger person that had committed the murder. And so they had gone to the schools first prior to going to find an actual doctor at the (laughs) hospital. It was just an interesting manner. (laughs) I would agree with that. It seems like they went a little bit out of order. One of the first specific people that the police investigated right at the beginning was actually Elizabeth's father, Cleo. There wasn't a whole lot of things to look at there, but Abby had talked about in the first episode that Elizabeth and Cleo had had a rocky relationship. And Cleo had abandoned her when she was a young child. And as Elizabeth had gotten older, she had attempted to repair her relationship with her father, but that just didn't work out. So obviously in these situations, police are going to go to close family, close friends. And at this point, Elizabeth's fiance was deceased. And so she didn't have a whole lot of people other than some family members that they could have looked into as potential suspects. I don't know the exact process or what exactly ruled this out, but they ended up determining that Cleo could not have been the one that had murdered Elizabeth. And it was time to move on to 
additional suspects. One person that Abby had mentioned in part one was Robert Manley. And and he was known to have seen Elizabeth just a few days prior to the last time that she had been seen. He was also able to identify one of the victim's shoes and a purse that had been found near the crime scene, which made him seem a little suspicious. But ultimately, all of his alibis checked out and he was cleared of this. I think the main reason, once again, that they looked into it is they didn't have a whole lot of people to go off of. And he was one of the last people to see her alive. Abby had talked about in part one as well, a envelope that had been received at the examiner's office with the phrase heaven is here on it. They'd also found personal documents, including her birth certificate, her social security card and an address book featuring the name Mark Hansen on the cover. Ultimately from this address book they were able to track down about 75 different men most of these men said that they had only briefly met the owner of the book let me jump in here because i think that's probably where the kind of media picked up on the fact that they thought she was this like devious like man crazy woman because she had these people in her address book something i kind of want to note She was really trying to become an actress. So I feel like if you meet anybody who might know somebody, you're going to write that down. You know what I mean? And for me, I just think about obviously this is a different time and age, but how many people you have in your contact list that you don't even really know? You met them once and took their like contact info and like I could go through there and be like, no idea, no idea. And so it's really unfortunate because I feel that she got very unfairly labeled here. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. You're right. She probably was trying to just find somebody to get her connected and get her foot in the door so that she could be an actress. The name Mark Hansen was on the cover of the book. And he had come forward and said, you know, that Elizabeth had crashed at his home before. And he ended up, he had a solid tight alibi, though, for the night that she had gone missing. And so he was crossed off the suspect list. So police really don't have anywhere to go necessarily with their suspect list, but it continues to have more people added to it and then just, just as quickly be taken off. The next year in 1948, there was a new lead, Leslie Dillon, somebody who had previously lived in LA, had contacted the police department about an acquaintance that they had that they believed to have been the one that murdered Elizabeth. The psychiatrist for the LAPD at the time, Dr. Joseph Paul DeRiver, actually didn't believe Leslie and accused him of actually having split personality and claimed that his split personality was this acquaintance that he was referring to that had murdered Elizabeth. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and I, I don't know exactly what led to... Dr. River like coming up with this accusation. I don't know if there was any sort of evidence that maybe Leslie had had some sort of possible split personality prior to this or anything, but they decide to kind of test it out. And so Dr. River lures Leslie to an area and had members of the department detain him to try to get a confession. And this was obviously illegal the way that they went about it. And Leslie was able to sneak a note about his predicament like out a window. And so people found out that the police had taken him. And then in the process of this, police realized that his imaginary friend or acquaintance was actually a real person. And he hadn't been making it up. It wasn't a split personality. And 
So they briefly looked into that and they're like, oh, crap, that guy's innocent and this guy's innocent. And we kind of just messed up a little bit. I love that they went to split personality before they went to maybe this person's real. (laughs) I don't know what their process was, what the thought process was. Like I said, I don't know if there was previous evidence that maybe Leslie had some sort of split personality or if it was like this doctor was just like, oh, no, I... I think that this is absolutely insane and I'm going to go with the wildest theory possible and I'm just going to bring in this whole other personality and it's an imaginary friend Mm -hmm. that's not real. Well, and I wonder if part of that kind of was influenced by how insane this case is in and of itself. It's definitely unique in a lot of ways and, you know, with the element of the whole, you know, the kind of... um, they had a word for it, but what we could look at it now is like the Joker smile that was like carved into her. Like it points to this idea of someone who's like a little mad or crazy. And so maybe that is where they were coming from. Either way, Leslie did file a lawsuit against the city. As he should. And there was an investigation in 1949 that looked at the efforts of the law enforcement had been making at this point and all of the inconclusive evidence. And the jury disseminated they didn't indict a suspect and after this the elizabeth case went cold they still didn't have a suspect at this point and they had probably traumatized this leslie guy a little bit and probably made him feel really bad for coming forward about a potential suspect i know i mean that's the fear and it it comes up a lot more than it should this idea of like you have this information, you want to do the right thing and go in, but how many wrongful convictions are there? I mean, for me, it's, I would be terrified. I mean, that's the thing. Like, yeah, you come forward and you're like, so-and-so did it. And police immediately just look at you like you're suspicious. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's definitely plays a big role in how many unsolved cases we have, because even the people that do think that they have some sort of incriminating evidence are afraid to go to police because it may turn around on them or they may not have enough evidence and then they have fear from the accused person coming after them. But either way, police should not be immediately accusing you if you come forward about somebody else. Either way, at this point, police still didn't have anywhere to go, but they had a lot more tips and confessions and suspects to sort through. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Kind of moving around here on the timeline, just based on all these different people and specifically when they come up. But on January 30th, 1947, a 33-year-old man named Daniel Voorhees walks into the police station and says, hey, I really need to get this off my chest. I'm the one that murdered Elizabeth Short. And so immediately police are like, did we just solve this murder? Because this is one of the first people that had come forward saying that they were involved in this murder. And so they immediately book him during their questioning, their interrogation. Daniel gives a lot of really confusing information about himself. So they 
obviously one of the things they want to know is like your name, your address, your phone number, all this stuff, anything about you. And when they ask for his address, he kind of gives a bunch of different answers, but he gives addresses of multiple hotels downtown and never an actual home address. Whether or not he's just bouncing from home to home is or from hotel to hotel, I guess, as his home. I'm not sure. But he then tells police that he has a wife and a daughter in another area, but he won't identify them or like prove that they actually exist. However, you'd think if he had a wife and a daughter somewhere else, then he would have an actual home address that he could be giving police. And he's just not. Daniel also told police that he had been having an affair with Elizabeth in L.A. And he he had multiple different claims about this. He had different stories and things about how she came to see him in the hotels and but he wouldn't actually say like which hotel or when or like any details about their actual affair necessarily just that she would come and see him sometimes so police were pretty convinced that he was probably not accurate but they still continue to investigate him a little bit more and he you know denies writing any of the letters to the police which police were like well we received letters and pretty convincing ones at that that mm-hmm. were coming most likely from the killer they keep looking but they finally get to a point where he like explains his timeline and how he would have murdered her and all this stuff and police realize that there's no chance that he could have been the one that had murdered elizabeth they assumed that he was just one of the people that was seeking some sort of publicity from this which i still i can't get my mind completely wrapped around why you would want your name to be at all connected to the murder of anybody like i get that some people just really want publicity but there are so many other ways to do it other than linking your name to a murder potentially going to prison for life for that murder and or being put to death for that murder i i can't wrap my mind around that either and especially with this case there's so many people who did this and i don't understand yeah it's it's a ridiculously terrifying number of people that tried to come forward and say that they did. So over the course of like weeks and months, there were actually estimated to be over 500 people that confessed to the LAPD that they had murdered Elizabeth Short. Which, you know, it it's not new or surprising that people who are already in prison would do this. You know, they're trying to get the attention. They're trying to get something out of their you know, monotonous day-to-day life that they're existing in when they're in prison. So that makes sense. But like, let's say, for example, what Eric, the person Erica is just mentioning, they just walked in off the street and did it. And it's just so bizarre to me. One of the things that I'd seen too is that a lot of homeless people are also confessing to murders like this because they think that if they can convince police that they actually did it and they can be convicted, then they would get to go to jail or prison where they would actually have a bed to sleep and Mm -hmm. three meals a day, which is so incredibly sad that homeless people are getting less than our prison system is and that homeless people feel the need to try to get accused or be convicted for a crime that they didn't commit just so that they can stay alive. Yeah, and especially with LA, it's always had such a high homeless population and they don't really do a lot trying to correct that or help people out. Obviously, 
there's avenues and institutions that are trying to, but it's just always been so, so extensive. And, you know, I'm not, I really am not too surprised or would not be surprised if I'm a good amount of those confessions were from people who were just looking for a way to get food and get off the streets. Yeah. I, it's just, it's just like I said, like we both said, it's just really sad that that's where we're at. In February of 1947, there was also a 29 year old army corporal named Josh Dumais who was in police custody in New Jersey and they had arrested him for the murder of Elizabeth Short. However, they look into it a little bit further and they talk to some people in the army and they realize that there's no way that he could have been involved in this murder because he was actually at Fort Dix at the time of the murder. I don't know how long they held him for, but like they they ran newspaper articles about the fact that he had been arrested for this murder and tied to it. And so like they basically drug his name through the dirt and then realized, oh, crap, we should probably see if this military man was ordered by the military or by law to be at a at a base at the time of like they just didn't look into that ahead of time i guess you mentioned earlier the grand jury and i came across it that looked into how mishandled this investigation was and what a good example it's it's really unfortunate because it makes you wonder if it could have been solved if maybe some other avenues were taken exactly there's a lot of negligence in this case i mean we see it in all of them we really do but I just feel like this one, there's a lot of people that are just coming forward and police are just kind of at a point where they just want to solve the case. And so they don't really care. They're not going to look into the accuracy necessarily. And then when something comes up where they're like, oh, crap, there's no way that they could have done it. They're like, well, now we have to start over with trying to solve this case. And that's I've said it before. I'll say it again. That's not the way that we're supposed to do this. Mm -hmm. We are not supposed to make the crime fit the person. We make the person fit the crime. And police, I feel like so often are just so focused on solving a case that they don't care if it's accurate. Right. And it it's just it leads to all the wrongful convictions and it leads to a lot of hassle and a lot of names that are being, like I said, drugged through the mud for no reason, just due to lack of looking at anything or lack of determining if this friend is real and just deciding that, you know, this person's insane and has a split personality. Like I, I just don't understand the thought process from some of these people. I will say though, this was in 1947, 1948, 1949, like late 40s, early 50s are when they're initially solving this case, obviously. So I'm hoping, and we, I mean, we do see it a little bit more. Some cases are handled differently now than they were before. Hopefully things are handled a lot better than the way that they were originally handling Elizabeth's murder. Another person that came forward and very quickly was determined to be innocent was a man named Max Handler. He had stuck to his guns basically at first and said you know i murdered her this is how like all this information so then they decided to have him take a lie detector test and during this lie detector test he ends up saying okay i lied my confession's not true i really just needed to be arrested and held for a few days because i was escaping a gang and so thanks for holding me for a few days and saving me i wasn't expecting that what another what bizarre (laughs) It's so bizarre. Like I said, over 500 people confessed to this murder. And one of them, I guess, confessed because they were trying to escape from gangs. I mean, hey, yeah, that's probably a pretty safe place to go. I I would agree. I don't think gangs are really hanging out in the prisons if they don't have to. So you're right. Probably safe. But I also like it's like playing a game of tag 
mm-hmm. and you have like home base where nobody <laughs> can get you if you're in home base. So like he used the jail as like home base. Sure. Like, oh, you can't get me if I'm here. I don't I don't know. Hopefully it worked out for him and he was able to escape permanently. But I have no idea anything else about this Max guy. <laughs> One of the biggest theories is actually from somebody that did not confess, but from a man named Steve Hodel, who is a retired detective from the Los Angeles Police Department, who wrote a book in 2003 titled The Black Dahlia Avenger, The True Story. And in this, he states that his late father, Dr. George Hodel, is actually the one responsible for the murder of Elizabeth. Well, we have that doctor piece. Yes. He also connects him to a potential other unsolved murder case of a young woman named Jeannie French. He not only wrote the book, but he goes on television shows and he uh, was also supposedly on Ghost Adventures to discuss his theory as well. So he's been on a lot of different platforms and some people think that he's absolutely insane and other people read his book and read his reasonings and see that maybe it is actually plausible that his dad was the murder of Elizabeth Short. So after this ad, we'll come back and I will tell you more about that. All right. So as I said, Steve Hodel really felt like his father, George Hodel, was the one involved in the murder of Elizabeth Short. So after his father died, Steve starts looking through all of his father's stuff and his personal items, you know, cleaning things out as you do when your parent passes. George and Steve had always had a really bad relationship ever since Steve was a kid. George was a doctor who didn't really provide for his family. And shortly after Steve had turned nine, he actually left and abandoned the whole family. When Steve started looking through all of his father's stuff, he found a photo album. So he finds this box and he starts looking in it and he finds pictures of like his mom, his dad, his brothers, different people in the family. But at the bottom of this box, he ends up finding another picture. Well, actually two pictures. And the two pictures are of a young woman whose eyes are focused downward. She has curly, deep black hair and very much resembles Elizabeth Short. And Steve said immediately when he saw this photo, his first thought was, that looks just like the Black Dahlia. So Steve starts looking into it even further. At this point, he's like, can I prove that my dad did it? Or maybe he's even at first thinking, can I prove that my dad didn't do it? Because I don't think any kid ever wants to assume that their parent murdered somebody, especially this brutally. Mm -hmm. But so he starts looking into it to try to see one way or another. And he gets a hold of a lot of the information regarding Elizabeth's murder. And he sees that... Elizabeth, as Abby had talked about in the first episode, had been given a hemicorporectomy, which is the procedure that slices the body beneath the lumbar spine, which is the only spot of the body where it can be severed in half without a bone breaking. And this supposedly, this technique had been taught in the 1930s, which would have been the exact time that George would have been in medical school. And so he would have learned this procedure during that time. So Steve starts to look at the letters that have been sent to the press and the police from the person claiming to be the Black Dahlia killer. And the handwriting apparently bore a very similar resemblance to his dad's handwriting. 
And he had things that his dad had written where he was able to compare the two. Police struggled to necessarily believe him. However, I, as I mentioned, you know, he was a retired police officer, Steve is. So he has some sort of background in investigation and <coughs> looking through evidence and things. So while people struggle to believe him, nobody's ever officially been able to prove him wrong at all. They had looked at a couple different things and they, Steve actually had a handwriting expert evaluate his dad's handwriting compared to the handwriting of the letters. And they said that there was a strong likelihood that they matched, but it was inconclusive and they couldn't officially determine that it was his father's handwriting. But they also couldn't determine that it wasn't. Right. I feel like a lot of times when the handwriting comparisons come up and stuff like this, it's kind of like that because... I feel like that's probably hard to like concrete say, yeah, that's a match, you know? Oh yeah, for sure. The other thing is too, that I always think about is, you know, if I was ever going to write a ransom note or like a, hey, I killed this person kind of letter, like any sort of letter, I probably wouldn't use my real handwriting. I would try to make Mm -hmm. it look sloppier or I would try to write nicer or I would use my left hand instead of my Mm -hmm. right hand. Like I think people... Like, I think handwriting is really, really hard to actually compare in these situations. The photographs that he had found in his father's photo album, Steve also sent to facial recognition experts. And the one photo they identified as a woman, they did not release her name. The other photo, they've not been able to specifically connect to another woman. So it's believed that that one could have actually been of Elizabeth. Another thing that Steve found was a folder that had a lot of receipts in it for contracting work that his dad had done on his childhood home. And one of the receipts showed a purchase just a few days before Elizabeth was murdered of 10 five pound bags of concrete Hmm. that were the same size and brand that Abby had mentioned had been found next to Elizabeth's body. Yeah, the cement bags. Yeah, that they believe the killer had actually carried her on suspicious so now he's connected yeah th- i thought that one was like that one's hard to mm-hmm. i mean maybe it's a popular concrete bag but the fact that it was just a few days prior to elizabeth's murder is definitely something that i think is really suspicious as steve continues to look through his notes and the notes of what he can get his hands on from the police department he ends up finding that the police department had focused on six suspects in this investigation one of the men on this list was his father, George Hodel, which I found to be really interesting that he found that after he had already found all these other things about his dad. Mm-hmm. No kidding. That's probably such a like, holy crap moment for him. Yes. So to continue with that is that they had actually kind of investigated him and had bugged his apartment's house at one point. And there is a transcript from what conversations had happened inside the home while their while George's house had been bugged. So a lot of the transcript supposedly is really like boring and bland and nothing really happens. But on February 19th, 1950, there is a conversation that happens later in the day. So around 8:25, there is silence. There there's like a man in the background um and then a woman screams and then screams again. And then is never heard from again. It is said that the woman had not been heard on the transcript at all prior to her screaming. But later in the day, George is talking to somebody, a friend of his, 
and says, quote, realized there was nothing I could do. Put a pillow over her head and cover her with a blanket. Get a taxi. Expired 1259. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. They continue to talk. And one more thing comes up that George, our friend, says, quote, supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. End quote. I'm sorry. Why wasn't he arrested? Thank you. I I don't know. I, I don't have anything about why they decided not to arrest George or ask him more questions. At this point, he's now dead and we can't ask him any questions. Yeah, that it seems like maybe they dropped the ball on that one. Oh, I absolutely. And that's the thing. Like some people are are very one sided on this. Like they either fully believe that George did it or they fully believe that George didn't do it. And I I lean more towards the fact that George is looking pretty damn suspicious. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, just with that stuff alone, it's suspicious. I wonder what it is that is pointing away from him. That I don't know. I don't have anything else really about him. I mean, there, there's a whole book. I did not read the entire book. Um, I found different excerpts from it and interviews that Steve had done. But if you guys want to read the book, like I said, it's called The Black Dahlia Avenger, The True Story written by Steve Hodel. So if you guys want to look that up, you want to read it, you can. But at this point, George has never officially been connected to this case. And like I said, he's now deceased. So there's no communicating with him about it. As I mentioned in part one, there are two different cases that police said have some similarities to Elizabeth's enough that they think. So one is some detectives think that the same person that murdered Elizabeth Short also committed the Cleveland torso murders. So these murders happened between 1935 and 1938, where at least 12 known victims, both men and women, were murdered. All of their victims had been decapitated while the person was still alive. The killer has not been identified. This was 10 years prior to 10 to 13 years prior to Elizabeth's murder. So it's possible, I guess. Yeah. I don't know exactly what similarities it does, especially because we're talking Cleveland versus L.A. Yeah. Like that's a a wide range. Not that the next one that I'm going to talk much about is any better, but it's I think it's because it's an unsolved crime and it's it's violent. Mm -hmm. So they're looking at that. There's nothing else that we see in L.A. specifically that's ever been potentially connected to Elizabeth's murder. Like nobody else was ever murdered in a similar way where police were like, that's probably the same person. The other one that's discussed as a possibility is the lipstick killer murders from 1945, a few years prior to Elizabeth's murder, where two women had been murdered in their homes with and they had been stabbed with one of them being shot They were violent. They were brutal. There was notes left on the wall in their bedroom in lipstick. And then there was also an abduction in 1946 of a six-year-old girl with a ransom note also left behind. That one has been solved, the lipstick murders. That was tied to a man named William Ahrens. To me, those just seem like... Like, I can understand why people are trying to draw the connections, but I'm not feeling them as much as, like, I would feel that George Hodel was probably involved. I agree, especially the lipstick murders. You know, we talked about the fact that the Cleveland Torso murders were in Cleveland, Ohio. Well, the lipstick murders were in Chicago, Illinois. Oh, yeah. So we've got 
some geographical space in there. Yeah, quite a bit. Well, I mean, obviously, Illinois and Ohio aren't that far apart, but like Ohio to L.A. or Illinois to Mm -hmm. L.A., like that's quite a wide range. However, like I said, there's like 10 years in between the Ohio one and then the L.A., so that's possible, but it just it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. However, as we know, police always hold things back. So maybe there's something that police specifically have in one of these that kind of ties them together a little bit more. Or it could just be detectives speculating and trying to just find similarities. At this point, the murder of Elizabeth Shore is unsolved. They, a lot of people think that the reason that this murder is unsolved still is just because of how much the media interfered. One thing that I saw that I thought was absolutely insane, and Abby talked a lot about how the media was just always like around the corner. They were always ready. And But officers and detectives said that there were actually reporters that had like come into the office, into like the police station and stuff, and they were answering phone calls and keeping like whatever was being reported to them private. Like they wouldn't tell police what the person on the phone said. So they were potentially getting like tips or whatever, and they just weren't telling the police officers like what information they were getting so it's extremely possible that certain things could have been held back so like i said at this point the murder of elizabeth shore or the black dahlia case is still unsolved we you know there's no specific person that's tied to this case i personally out of everybody that i mentioned i think that george hodel is probably the most likely it's kind of sad that police didn't ask any of these questions didn't investigate him further when he was alive but at this point all we can do is hope that some sort of evidence even if it is circumstantial can potentially lead to this case being solved thanks to listening to this week's episode of crime over coffee you can find us on instagram at crime over coffee or on facebook at crime over coffee podcast where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.